This past week, my family and I watched a movie called uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer. And the title of the movie is based on the American chess grand champion and world chess champion Bobby Fischer, who was a child prodigy, who was a genius, who was uh, arguably probably the greatest chess player of the 20th century. But the movie is not so much about Bobby Fischer, it's about those who want their child, their child prodigy, to be the next Bobby Fischer and what they will do in order to, to achieve that. And the title uses, on a play, uses a play on words. The search for Bobby Fischer is because uh, Bobby Fischer was reclusive. Sometimes he was erratic, and uh, he would disappear for years between major championships. So chess enthusiasts were always wondering, what happened to Bobby Fischer? They were always looking for him, wondering when he would surface again and once again play against whoever the current world champion was at that time. But the movie tells the true story of a seven-year-old by the name of Josh Waitzkin. And when Josh was just seven years old, he discovers that he possesses a gift for chess, and his family seeks to nurture it. And a gift for chess is probably an understatement. He first noticed the game of chess being played while walking with his mother in New York City's Washington Square Park, and he was only six years old. And at the age of seven, he, he started to study with his first formal teacher, chess teacher. And I did a little research and found that while he was in the third to the ninth grade, he led his school to seven national championships, and during that same time, he won eight individual national, national titles. And at the age of 11, he and a fellow prodigy by the name of K.K. Karanja were the only two children to draw, that is, to have a tie with world chess champion Garry Kasparov in an exhibition game. Kasparov played simultaneously against 59 other youngsters. And five years later, Watskin earned the title of national master. At age 16, he became an international master. But his unique and special gifts did not end with chess. He was much more well-rounded and emotionally healthy than Bobby Fischer was. As a young adult, his focus shifted to the martial art Aikido. He holds several U.S. national medals. He was a 2004 world champion title, or won the world champion title, in the competitive sport of Tajiti Shu, which has to do with a person's natural instinct to resist force with their hands. And of course, he holds a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, incidentally, I just have a yellow belt in jiu-jitsu. But anyway, concerning child prodigies with very special and unique gifts, I have one more thing that happened this last week, because this past week I ordered a, a daily devotional uh, on Amazon that was called The, the One-Year Christian History. And, and each entry as a devotional is based on what happened in Christian history on that particular year. And I received the book this week, and the first one I read was on December 31st, which told the story of the life and conversion of Robert Boyle. Robert Boyle is the father of modern chemistry. In 1625, when he was just eight years old, he was enrolled at Eton College, one of Great Britain's finest schools, and there he displayed a precocious and fierce intelligence. But his ability to read Latin and Greek at the age of eight and do algebra without paper and pencil 
was not sufficient for this young man's education. So when he was 12 years old, his father sent him to Switzerland to learn dancing, fencing, tennis, and French. After he came to Christ, Boyle's keen mind was continually drawn to science. At Oxford College, on his father's estate, he set up laboratories where he painstakingly inquired about the properties of gases and other natural substances. At the root of all his discoveries was order, because he believed that the Creator God was a God of order. It was the basis for the empirical method of science that he helped pioneer. Boyle was among the first to demonstrate that substances are made up of atoms and he was the first to create a vacuum in which the effects of temperature and pressure on gases could be studied. But as devoted he was to science, he was even more devoted to his God. Although God would always know infinitely more than we do as people, Boyle believed that he allowed them through science a glimpse into God's perfection, or his God's perfection through the window of science. And so the ultimate goal of science, therefore, he believed, was to know and to worship God. How about that? The ultimate goal of science is to know and worship God. But God also revealed himself to people through his word. So Boyle devoted much of his later life to translating and distributing the Bible in Irish, Welsh, Indian, Turkish, and Malaysian. Now these true life stories of genius children, the kinds of lives they lived, are amazing. But these kinds of lives pale in comparison to one 12-year-old boy named Jesus, the child who is God. The child who is God. So please turn your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, beginning at the verse 39. Here in the second chapter of Luke, we get a glimpse into the child who is God. And it's a dramatic and moving account of the only recorded incident in Jesus' life in the first 30 years of his life. This is all we know about Jesus between the accounts surrounding his birth and when he began his ministry when he was about 30 years old. This is all we know about Jesus' childhood and early life of the child who is God. So we begin reading at verse 39 of Luke chapter 1. It says, When they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, that is, when his parents had performed everything, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, and when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan, and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. 
When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. You'll notice that it said in verse 39 that nothing is, is said about the visit of the Magi. We see nothing of Herod and the slaughter of the children in Bethlehem or the escape of the Holy Family uh, to Egypt. Those familiar Bible stories of Jesus' birth. And move just, Luke just simply moved from the presentation of Jesus in the temple where we heard the prophecies of the aged Simeon and Anna directly to return in Nazareth. Nazareth. He says, Verse 39, when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city in Nazareth. Why doesn't he say anything about the Magi and Herod? You know, the answer is very simple to that. Matthew had already written about those events. You can read them in Matthew chapter 2. But Luke wants to draw our focus on the life of the child who is God. And that is Luke's purpose here. You might remember that John finished his gospel by saying, There are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. If everything was written about Jesus, not even all the books in the world could contain it. So each gospel writer chose what portion or part of the gospel story they wanted to tell. Only Matthew mentions the Magi, only Luke mentions the shepherds, and Mark and John don't mention either one. So Luke, as are all the gospel writers, are selective to what he includes here. In fact, when I was preparing this message, I spent some time filling in the blanks, explaining the timetable, the visit of the Magi, how they came later to the house in Bethlehem, and all those kind of things. And, and I found it uh, even personally very time-consuming and distracting from what Luke wants us to know. And this is what Luke wants us to know. Verse 40 of the second chapter. After they returned to Nazareth, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Verse 40 covers 12 years of Jesus' life. And it really is a very short, simple statement that he developed, Jesus developed, as children normally develop. And this is something that's important for us to affirm and know here, that Jesus was fully human. He was fully God, but he also is and was fully human. He was a man from the very beginning, and he grew in his human development. It's significant that the earliest heresies in the Christian church didn't deny the deity of Christ. They didn't deny that Jesus is God. They tried to deny his full humanity. Uh, there are all kinds of strange heresies that, that Jesus was some kind of phantom spirit or, or a ghost or something less than human. And there are all kinds of false gospels written about his childhood. 
where a genius Jesus supposedly performed miracles at a very young age. The gospel, so-called gospel of Thomas, for example, says that Jesus would make a bird out of clay that he would breathe into it and then it would fly away. And as a child, he would heal lepers and, and heal the blind. And these false accounts come out of what are called the Gnostic Gospels. We call them the pseudepigrapha, which means false writings. They are false. And they denied the humanness of Jesus. They denied that Jesus was fully man. And so Luke, in Luke chapter 2, verse 40, he shows us Jesus' real and true genuine humanity. And as all children grow, so this child continued to grow in the very normal physical pattern of growth. He grew from his infancy to being on the brink of adulthood at the age of 12. Physically, he grew stronger. Intellectually and spiritually, he grew in wisdom. And Luke says the grace of God was on him. That means that God's special hand of favor, his grace of blessing was on Jesus. And when you get to verse 52, where it says he kept increasing in favor or grace with God and man, it means that the special hand of God's grace and blessing was on Jesus in a way that was obvious to everyone. But you may wonder how Jesus, who is eternal God, could grow in wisdom and favor with God and men. If he is perfect as God, why did he need to grow? Alfred Plummer explains it this way. At each stage, Jesus was perfect for that stage. He was perfect for the stage of a toddler, that is. He was perfect for the stage of a, an adolescent, a 12-year-old. But then he says, But the perfection of a child, that is humanly, is inferior to the perfection of a grown man. So in his humanity, Jesus submitted to his parents. Though in his deity, he knew all things. In his humanity, he had to grow in godly wisdom and understanding even of his divine calling and mission. And at this point, we will see beginning verse 41 in the trip to Jerusalem. We begin to wonder at, at, at what point did Jesus become aware, not only of his deity, but to understand his unique relationship with his heavenly Father and his purpose for coming to this earth to die for the sins of the world. Jesus, like all children, grew in that knowledge and wisdom, but at age 12, we get a remarkable insight into this. Uh, verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, and when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. Now, according to the Old Testament law, all males aged 13 and above were required to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Now, no such requirement was made of women and children. Women and children often went, but uh, they were not required to go for these feasts. The women often went th with their husbands, uh, which Mary did on this occasion, and so did Jesus. Now, it's customary to take a 12-year-old son to the Feast of Passover because in another year, at the age 13, he would officially be, quote, a son of the commandment and he'd become a full member of the synagogue. In fact, the Jewish teaching in the Mishnah 
suggest that fathers should exercise their boys in the observance of Passover one or two years before they are of age. So at the age of 11 or 12, they start to, to explain what Passover means. They, they take, the, take them to the Passover when they have the opportunity. And so the 12-year-old Jesus, brimming with energy and excitement of a 12-year-old, was brought along to observe as much as he could and learn as much as he could about the heart of Israel's religious life. We're told in verse 44 that they traveled to and from Jerusalem in a caravan. And that caravan would have been comprised of family and close friends and relatives that traveled together. And the journey to Jerusalem took three or four days. And along the way, they would sing the Psalms of Ascent. Those are Psalms 120 through 134. Ascent means going up. These are the going up songs that they would sing along the way while they were going up to Jerusalem and then up to the temple. And so all of this was a festive band of flute playing and singing. Words like, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Or to you, God, I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. They joyfully anticipated and sang along the way as they were going to Jerusalem to worship God. And at Passover, Jerusalem swelled from over 200,000 pilgrims packed into the walled city. Every place available to stay was rented. And in lieu of rent, some of the cheerful hosts were often given the hides of the sheep that were sacrificed that week. And the merchants, they came in advance and they lined the streets displaying their wares. And beggars strategically placed themselves by the gates of the city and in the gates of the temple. And the most intense activity was at the sheep stalls where pilgrims bartered for sheep, for the lamb. And over 10,000 sheep would be sacrificed at the temple and eaten for Passover. But it was the temple that would have had the rapt attention of the 12-year-old Jesus. Its courts and its gates and its colonnades would hold 210,000 people. At the time, the temple and then the temple mount on which it was built was the largest man-made structure, man-made structure of its time. There was nothing more larger, more grand, more ornate, more gold, more marble, even in Rome or Greece. And when the sun rose on Passover, intense activity filled the encampments, the homes, and especially the temple. All 24 divisions of priests attended the temple, hundreds and hundreds of priests working that day. And their first task was to take the leaven from each home, which had been gathered by candlelight, and then to ceremonially burn it. And then they prepared for the ritual slaughtering of the Passover lambs. By midday, all the work was done, and there was a holy air of anticipation that rested over Jerusalem. And at about 3 p.m., the sacrifice began of these thousands and thousands of lambs. And since Jesus was 12 years old and being taught about all of this, we can surmise that Joseph took Jesus to witness the sacrifice of their lamb. 
And the priest standing in two long rows caught the blood of, in gold and silver basins and then they doused it against the altar. And the massive amount of blood from the, the thousands of sacrifice flowed in open drains into the Kidron Valley. And during all this time, the Levites sang the Hallel Psalms. Hallel means praise songs. They prayed, they sang the Hallel Psalms and as Joseph dressed his lamb, which had been sacrificed, before departing, he would wrap it in its own skin, he would throw it over its shoulder, and he would depart with the young Jesus in tow. And at the place where they were staying, the lamb was roasted on a pomegranate spit, and it was joyfully eaten at sundown. The cedar meal, the, meal, the Passover meal, was interspersed with hand washings and prayers and hallel psalms, these songs of praise. And at the conclusion, the young Jesus was to ask, why is this night different from all the other nights? And the father, his stepfather Joseph, would respond here with a moving review of God delivering his people from Egypt. The night ended late. And many worshipers returned to the temple to pray and sing all night. And I wonder what Jesus would have thought in experiencing his first Passover. How much did he realize and understand that he himself would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Verse 43 says that the family stayed the full number of days in Jerusalem. One writer says that Jesus would have spent those days in holy delight. Every rite and every ritual would have spoken volumes to him. His astute mind would have been connecting scripture with scripture as well as with his own life and calling. His heavenly Father revealed more and more the mystery of who Jesus really is. And then in verse 43, we find the parents' worst nightmare. Verse 43, And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find them, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Now, it would not have been unusual for people as they are traveling along to gather together along the way in such a caravan. The women would have been walking with women, the men with men, the older children with, with other older children walking together. And when the caravan stopped for the evening, Mary and Joseph came back together and discovered that Jesus was not with them. I thought he was with you. No, I thought he's with you. So they searched the whole caravan among their relatives and their close friends, and Jesus was not to be found. So in a panic, they returned to Jerusalem to find him. And verse 48 describes their feelings of anxiety, actually as suffering, to be in suffering. Verse 46, Then after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Three days means that uh, they had one day travel from Jerusalem, another day back, 
and then a third day, a full day of looking for him in the city. They found him, finally, in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers. He was listening to them and asking them questions. Verse 47, And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. The word translated amazed means to be astounded. They were struck by Jesus' understanding and, and answers. You see, it was typical of the teachers of that day to teach by asking questions. We call it the rabbinic method of learning. Uh, the rabbis asked questions, and uh, a, a student was taught by answering those questions and, and, ask, and answering other questions. And the teacher would ask follow-up questions to help the student understand more or to discover the depth of the student's understanding. But it was like they couldn't plumb the depths of Jesus' understanding. And in verse 48, we see the panicked response of Mary and Joseph. When they saw Jesus, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Mary's words are literally, Suffering pain, we are searching for you. Suffering pain. And she reprimands her son in front of the teachers. Why have you treated us this way? Her reproach came from her hurt feelings, exasperated by her sorrow, her suffering, the anxiety she had been experiencing. She obviously considered Jesus to have sinned against them. But 12-year-old Jesus did not see it that way. And the answer he gave gives us the earliest recorded words of Jesus. You know, think back to his birth. What is going to be the first thing that somebody would record in a gospel that, that Jesus says? We're always waiting for those first words of a baby. We have nothing of Jesus until he's 12 years old. And the first words that are recorded of what he said, as we might expect, had great theological importance. In fact, his response was a gentle question. Verse 49. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? This is a very significant statement. In the first place, don't miss this. This is the first time any individual ever claimed God as his personal father. As his personal father. It is true that the Jews saw God as the father of the universe in a creative sense. They saw God as their father, as they were offspring of God in the creative sense. They saw God as the father of their nation in a national sense. He had brought the universe into existence, and he had brought the nation of Israel into existence when he chose Abraham. In that sense, God is father. But nobody had the audacity to say, God is my father, in an intimate, personal sense as being of the same nature as God. Because that has tremendous implications. But Jesus, by the age of 12, had grown physically, mentally, and spiritually to a place where his human mind could grasp the mind of God, his Father. He was, after all, God and man. And by the time he reached 12, his human mind had developed to where he understand 
understood who he is and why he had come. So here you have the single statement in three decades of Jesus' life recorded in Scripture. And it's a statement identifying himself as God's only begotten Son. This is monumental. In fact, even as much as Mary and Joseph knew about the angel telling them that he would be the Son of the Most High, his name shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit of God. Mary and Joseph still didn't get what Jesus got. It tells us in verse 50, they did not understand. They didn't understand the statement which he had made to them. There's a lot of things they did understand. They understood that he was the promised Messiah. They understood that he would sit on the forever throne of David. They understood that they had lived with him for 12 years, but the full meaning of that was just not clear to them. Now, when Jesus said to Mary and Joseph, I had to be in my father's house, if you have the New American Standard Bible, you notice that the word house is in italics. That means the word was not in the original language. It's been added by the translators. House has been added by the translators to help us understand in English. The King James Version reads, I had to be about my father's business. And there again, business is in in italics. I had to be about the work of my, my father. Literally, it's, I had to be in the things of my father. I had to be in the things of my father. And certainly the things in and of the Father pertain to the temple. Jesus would later drive the money changers out of the temple. He quoted Isaiah 56, 7, where God said, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. There Jesus specifically uses the word for house, because he's only speaking of the house of God. He's limited it to the house of God in that instance. In his statement to Mary and Joseph, Jesus did not want to limit the things of God just to the house of God. It certainly included the house of God, and that's where Jesus went every time he was in the temple, every, or every time he was in Jerusalem. Every day Jesus was in Jerusalem, he went to the temple. But at the age of 12, Jesus felt for the first time the strong and irresistible impulse that divine necessity of being about and being in the things of the Father, to be about his Father's business, to be in the things of the Father. Jesus experienced that awakening to spiritual consciousness of concentration, consecration of himself unto the Father. It was the first manifestation of his passive and active obedience to the will of the Father in all things. Even at this stage, it was the fourth bursting of the inmost meaning of his life. Later, Jesus would say, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, to finish the work of him who sent me. Later, Jesus tells disciples that he doesn't say anything unless the Father tells him to say it. He'll also say that he only does what he sees the Father doing, doing the Father's work. And then 20-some years later, the night before he goes to the cross to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus will pray to the Father, I glorified you on earth, 
having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. I accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Then on the cross, Jesus will say, it is finished. It is finished. And verses 51 and 52 tell us all that is recorded about the next 18 years of Jesus' life. And he went down with his parents and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Here's another instance that says that about Mary, how she took all those things to heart, kept them in her heart, and treasured them. Verse 52, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word this morning that has shown us something of the boy Jesus at age 12 that pertains specifically to why he did come into this world, why he was born in Bethlehem, laying in a manger, even why he went, even why he went to the temple at age 12 and we see through the, the Passover celebration, that entire week of rituals and sacrifices and singing and praises. All of it has to do with the Lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for saving us through his blood. Father, we thank you for making us one of your children, adopting us into your household. Father, that we might also say, not in the same sense quite of what Jesus said, my Father, but now we can pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, because we are indeed one of your children through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And for this, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.